Well, good morning. Good to see everybody here this morning. It's good to see real people real life, in real life, right? So uh, this morning, uh, anybody here like to scuba dive, snorkel? I know one of the things, yeah, I love doing that. When I get to go to a tropical place, uh, I like to go snorkeling. I haven't got to scuba diving yet, but I like to snorkel. And uh, how many people would love to be in a tropical place right now? Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, everybody. I see a lot of hands going up here, going up online. Um, uh, you can give us a thumbs up online. Uh, the, thing is, the thing I love to do is I love getting out there because it's another part of God's creation that we get to enjoy. And I've had an opportunity to swim with turtles and sharks and eels and all kinds of different types of tropical fish. And, and I love to do that. And I love going places and exploring reefs. And just I think it's a really cool thing to do. Uh, I was reading an article uh, in the New York Times last fall, and in the article it talked, it was talking about the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Now that's like, if you're a scuba person or a snorkeler, this is like, this is the place to go, right? The Great is the largest reef, I think one of the largest, if not the largest reef on the planet, uh, just off the coast of Australia, and it just is a huge uh, reef. And the New York Times article was, was saying that in the past 25 years, that reef, this huge reef, has shrunk in half. It's half the size it was 25 years ago. And they say it's because there have been, especially within the past five years, there have been three what they call bleaching events because of rises temperature water that's killing the coral. We actually saw this at Cannon Beach uh, when we traveled there a couple summers ago. We went to see the starfish, and they were talking about how the starfish population has shrunk, they said, by 90% because of the rise in ocean temperature. So this is all illustrating this idea. And I, first of all, I, my first thought was, oh, I got to get to Australia. You know, let's go to Australia. But then COVID hit, or COVID, we were already in COVID, so we couldn't go. Uh, we're probably not going to go. It's expensive. Um, but one of the things is that, that made me realize is that, oh, wow, that is a very short period of time given the planet's age, right? 25 years for something that size to shrink in half in 25 years, that's phenomenal. And so climate change is happening. We know that. We know that's happening around us. We, we can't ignore it anymore. And so I'm going to, I always think, like, what's a Christian response? What's a biblical response to things, to contemporary issues that we face? And I'm just going to share this as well. This is not a political message, right? This is not about politics for me. This isn't about choosing one side of the aisle or another side of the aisle. In fact, I think there are three contemporary issues that are facing us today, and I, I would say that racial reconciliation is a big contemporary issue. I would say that political polarization is a contemporary issue, and I think climate change is an issue. And my task as a pastor, when I look at these things that are going on in our society, and as people are talking about them and thinking about them, I'm always thinking, what's the biblical point of view? What's the Christian perspective on these issues not about choo- it's not about choosing sides for me. It may be for you, but for me, I'm saying, what does the Bible have to teach us about this? So we're going to take a look today at our relationship to earth um, that is talked about in the scriptures, and it's throughout the scriptures. And so this would be a really great time to take out a pen and a piece of paper because I'm going to give us all a crash course right now in the biblical story that what's happening in the Bible in terms of our relationship to creation. I would also say this, as Christians, we do not worship creation. We worship the creator. And we are to point others to the creator, and we worship the creator who made all this creation, what we call creation. 
but we do have a relationship to the earth, to the planet. And so what I'm going to give you right now is a biblical crash course in our relationship to planet earth. Are you ready to go? Because, and I'm telling you, we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation in about five to ten minutes. So just buckle up, get ready, because we're going to move through this. So let's start in Genesis chapter 1. What's happening in Genesis chapter 1 is that humans are created, and we're created in God's image to be image bearers, to, to reflect God to, the other, to others. And it says that we take charge of the earth. We're in charge of the planet. And then this idea here is ruling. Another word is dominion over in the Hebrew. And there are two Hebrew words here, rada and kabash, which are talking about our ruling of the earth. Now, when we think of that, we tend to think, okay, we're in charge. Isn't that cool, right? We love being in charge. Who, who likes to be in charge in their house, right? All right, everybody, right? <laughs> I love it. I see a couple back here, both hands, we're both in charge, right? So that's, I love that. It's, that's, we all want to be there, right? And so one of the things is that when we think about this, we think, okay, I'm in control, right? I'm in control of what happens on the earth. And this idea here, though, in this, these two Hebrew words is this idea of a king ruling a kingdom, and the king would, would take, you know, some of the harvest from the farmers, from the, from the people in the kingdom to sustain the king, right? So there's this idea that the king rules over the kingdom, but the kingdom also provides for the king. And so that's kind of the relationship that's described here in Genesis chapter 1. And so if we look at that, God created the planet to sustain us, to provide for us. So God put us on a planet to provide and sustain us and give us, sustain our lives. And actually put us in a garden. Uh, so that's where we get chapter 2. So chapter 2 says that humans are created what? Where are we created from though? What did God use to create us? Earth, soil, dust, right? In fact, Ash Wednesday will say, you are of the dust and to the dust you shall return, right? And this idea is to remember that we have a relationship. We're actually made of the earth and God breathed life into the dirt, right? To make us, to make Adam. And so this relationship is there. They go together. And the, now what's happening with Adam and Eve is they're to farm and care for the garden. So even notice this, before they even fall, before sin enters the picture, they are responsible for tending the garden. And so they weren't just lounging around, you know, eating whatever fruit, you know, just hanging out. They actually had a responsibility in the garden. We find Adam naming the animals and finding out, okay, this is, we need an Eve here, not just animals. And so there are different things happening here in chapter 2 that talk about our relationship to the garden, to the earth, to the planet. Now, in chapter 3 is where we get what we call the fall of humanity or the sin. Sinners, Adam and Eve sin. And they are what? Banished from the garden. They're banished from this beautiful place that God had created for them. And Adam is given a curse. There's a curse. But if you go back and read chapter 3, the curse is on the ground. The curse is on the land itself. And so there's this curse or alienation between Adam and Eve and the earth, the planet itself, the dust from which they were created. So do you see this, what's happening? So their relationship with God and their relationship to the garden and to the planet was intact before this, but as a result of sin, not only did that sin affect their relationship to God, it affected their relationship to the planet, to the earth, to the soil, right? 
So go read chapter 3 again and take a look at that. Now, Genesis chapter 9, we have something else happening called the flood. God floods the whole, the, the whole planet, right? According to Genesis chapter 9. And then after the flood, what did those of you who've been to Sunday school, who was on the ark? Who was on the ark during the flood? This is, this is audience participation time, by the way. Noah, and who else? Or two of every animal. Thank you. Thank you for going to Sunday school. Um, so two of every animal is brought on the ark. So what is God doing? God is preserving creation, right? And so God is using the ark not only to preserve Noah and humanity, but to preserve all of creation. So God obviously cares about creation. And if you look at the end of that flood story in Genesis chapter 9, you look at what happens. Remember the rainbow comes out in the sky, right? And it says that rainbow is a reminder, a symbol of God's everlasting covenant. That means eternal covenant with who? If you go back and read it, Genesis chapter 9, it's not only a covenant with humans, but all life on earth, all living creatures. So God's eternal covenant is not only with humans, but with everyone and every living being and every, all life on the planet. Does that make sense? And it's an eternal covenant. It's not a temporary covenant. So that's important. And this is going to come back in the, in the New Testament. Okay, so that's what, what's happening in Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, and 9. And that's just Genesis. You ready to move on? Because we're going to go through the whole history of Israel in like two minutes, two, maybe three minutes. All right. So we fast forward a little bit into the story of the Exodus story in chapter 16, Israel's history. So we look at some history lessons from Israel. In Exodus chapter 16, we find that what are humans doing when they're in the wilderness? They get out in the wilderness, they leave Egypt. What are the first thing that the humans do in the, Israel, in the wilderness? What do you remember? Sunday school lesson again. What, what do we learn in Sunday school? What did the humans do when they got there? They grumbled. They complained. And what did they complain about? We don't have any food. Did you come out, bring us out here in the desert to die, Moses, right? They're complaining, and they ask for food. And God says, I'll take care of this, right? I got you. I got your back, right? And so God provides manna and quail every day for the Israelites. And so every day they will go out and collect manna, and they will collect quail. But here's the, here's the thing. They are only to take what they need for that day. If they take more than what they need for the day, it spoils and it rots. The only time they're supposed to take more than the daily allowance is on the sixth day because the Sabbath was the seventh day and they weren't to go gather on the Sabbath. So God would provide for two days of food on the sixth day. And so they were to only do that. So the point here is God is saying to them, trust me. Have faith in me that I will provide for you today. Don't worry about tomorrow. I think someone else said that in the New Testament, right? So there's this idea that we're to trust God for having enough, right? And so they do this and they learn this lesson in the wilderness to just simply depend on God's provision for the day. Now, when we get to Leviticus chapter 25, Leviticus, not everybody's a big fan of Leviticus. I think Leviticus gives us a lot of insights Leviticus chapter 25, when they get to the promised land and when they get to the land that God has called them to, when they farm the land, Leviticus chapter 25 says, you are to farm it for six years, and in the seventh year, 
don't farm it. So let the land rest for one year. That means don't plant, don't do anything, and live off of whatever comes up off the, out of the farmland on that seventh year organically, naturally. Don't farm it, don't till it, don't do anything to it. And farmers actually know that you have to let a land, land lay fallow to let the nutrients come back into the soil. So this is good farming practice. It's also a command of God to do this. And also, there was also a year 50, every year 50 years, or the four, after 49 years, all the land ownership reverted back to original owners, and there was a year of jubilee. Debts were canceled based on the, the timeline. And so there's this year of jubilee, or this celebration of God's goodness in the land, and that, that it has to do with the land. So that's important to know, Leviticus chapter 25. This is, this is going to make sense here in a second. Just stay with me. Keep taking notes. So in Leviticus chapter 26, there's a warning that if you don't obey the land, the Sabbath, don't give the land the Sabbath rest that it's called for, there's going to be consequences. That says in chapter 26. So fast forward to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 25. Jeremiah predicts and prophesies a 70-year exile for the Israelites. He says, you're going to be in exile in Babylon. You're going to be held captive. You're going to be taken away for 70 years. Now, this 70-year number is significant. We actually learn later, uh, learn in the history of Israel in Second Chronicles. But here's what happens. That's one year for the 490 years that Israel did not let the land observe a Sabbath. What they did was they took more than they needed and they planted in that seven year, and they tilled the, farm, the land on the seven year, and they did that for 490 years. So here we see in Exodus taking more than they needed. Here in the rest of the history of Israel, we see them farming the land, taking more than they need, and the consequence of that, explained in Leviticus chapter 26, and here in Jeremiah and the exile is, okay, you did this for 490 years. You did not observe the Sabbath of the land. You took more than you needed. Isaiah also said that they were building houses and kept adding onto their houses, and they were building their houses closer and closer together and taking up more of the land. And so there's this idea that they're over-consuming. They're, they're living on more than they needed. They were taking more than enough, right? This is the, the biblical witness here. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and 36, this is reaffirmed and talked about, and First uh, and Second Chronicles are two books that go together to give us the whole history from Genesis to the exile, if you want to read all, both books. But notice that oftentimes people are quoting chapter 7 of Second Chronicles, you know, that if we humble ourselves and repent, then God will do what? Heal what? Our land. Now, it's easy for us in, our, in, our, in the Western world to think about, because we're removed from agriculture, and when we think of that word land, we tend to think, Oh, our nation, or our society, or our culture. But no, it literally meant the land. <laughs> Heal the land, God. Bring it back to life, right? And so that if we would humble ourselves and repent, that God would, what? Heal the land itself. The decay, the destruction that we heard about in Romans chapter 8, right? That's what the, the groaning is about. And that God wants to heal our land. See, something happened in the Western world, just a, a, an example of this. In the Western world, we created the, we had the Industrial Revolution, we created manufacturing, food, and we began to process food. And the purpose of this was because food was scarce, and people were hungry, 
and we needed to get food to people. And so we created this process in manufacturing to, to process food and get it to people. And guess what? We did a really good job. It worked. We actually have enough food for everybody in our nation, right? And everybody in the Western world, and probably more so than the Western world, right? We have enough food for the other parts of the world. So here's the thing that happened, though. We had enough, but when we had enough food, what did we do? We kept making more than we needed. And so then we found new ways to sell it and buy it and trade it and see how that, and so we, were, we went beyond enough at some point. Some, at some point in our history, in Western civilization, we reached a tipping point. And we went beyond, just as the Israelites did in the wilderness, and just as Leviticus warned us not to do. And so we kept producing and producing and producing, and consuming and consuming and consuming. So that got us to the Old Testament. Are you still with me? I'm just checking. Still awake? So what? You may be saying, well, okay, Matt, great, Old Testament. You got the Old Testament for us. What about Jesus? What about the New Testament? Well, let's take a look at Jesus. Jesus gave us a great prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, we pray the Lord's Prayer. We're going to pray it this morning at the communion. What do we pray? Give us this day our daily bread, right? Not tomorrow's bread. Again, echoing the Exodus story. Again, echoing God that we trust and have faith in God for today, to have enough for today, not worrying about tomorrow, I think Jesus said, right? And so the other thing about the prayer is that God, that Jesus teaches us to pray on earth as it is in heaven, to bring heaven to earth. We're praying that heaven would come to earth, that God would restore us and restore creation and all creation, right? So that's part of what we're praying, right? That heaven would come to earth. In the Gospels, Jesus teaches three parables of stewardship. And in each of those parables, what happens is that a landowner or a property owner leaves their property to other, in the hands of other people called stewards. And then the property owner comes back and holds them accountable for what they did and how they were, what responsibility they took with the property. Again, this idea of stewardship is reflected in creation story, right? God has entrusted us with the planet, and God will hold us accountable for how we manage and till and take responsibility for the garden, for the planet that God has given us. So we are stewards, right? And here's another, one last thing out of the Gospels, uh, from Jesus. John 3.16. Anybody heard that verse before? John 3.16. Who, who knows John 3.16? For God so loved the world. What does that mean? If you go and look at the original language there, it's the word cosmos, which means all created order. So Jesus didn't just die for humanity, which is a big part of it, I believe. Jesus did die for humanity. But notice that it's really Genesis chapter 9, God's everlasting covenant. Jesus is the promise, the keeping of the promise of the everlasting covenant that God made with Noah and the, all of creation. And Jesus is saying, I come and I die for the whole world, all creation, all humanity. So there's a connection here with God keeping God's promise to, to us and to creation. And Jesus is the one 
who will restore that. So Jesus died, God so loved the world. Jesus died for all the world, right? All the cosmos. And then, so you still with me? So I'm going to jump ahead because we're going to look at Romans 8. But if we jump ahead to our future hope in Revelations chapter 21 and 22, I told you we go from Genesis to Revelation. Here we are. In Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we see the restoration of heaven to earth. If you go read that passage, you'll see the restoration of the garden. You'll see a lot of imagery of the Garden of Eden, that God is restoring the planet to that status, to restore it. That's our hope as Christians. That's our biblical hope. And so what's happening here, if you go read the passage, it's not earth doesn't go to heaven. Heaven comes to earth. And there's a new heaven and a new earth, and everything is restored. Our relationship to God is restored. Our relationship to planet earth and to the soil is restored because that was the curse. So Jesus is reversing the curse of Genesis 3, also found in Revelation. It all ties together. So does that make sense, by the way? Can you see the themes here in the scripture? So this brings us to Romans 8. You're like, when are we going to get there, Matt? We got there. Here's the question for Romans 8. Why is creation frustrated and groaning? Why is it frustrated? Why is it groaning? Why is it upset? (laughs) It says, verses 20 and 21, creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. It was the choice of the one who subjected it, but in the hope that creation itself will be set free from slavery to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children, right? So it's looking to be restored along with us, <laughs> that all of it will be restored. And notice that it's frustrated not because of anything that creation, that creation didn't do anything, right? Creation praises God. Creation gives us, points us to God. But it didn't subject itself. God subjected it, and we were responsible for that subjection in the curse found in Genesis chapter 3. So we're responsible for the decay that is happening to our creation. That's Romans 8.20, and that's why it's groaning. That's why it's frustrated. But here's the beautiful thing. Look at verse 19 just before that. It says, the whole creation waits breathless with anticipation for the revelation of God's sons and daughters. I love this verse here. You know, oftentimes when you hear Romans 8 preach, we preach the second half, but this is the first half. And what I love about this is that what creation is is saying, it's personifying, Paul's saying that creation's waiting for us to be the sons and daughters of Christ, to be formed into the image of God's son so that we will be a part of this restoration of the planet Earth, of the garden, right? And the creation is waiting on us to be revealed to the whole world for the sons and daughters to come forward, so to speak. And notice that this, the later verse says, that verse that we know some often repeat is, all things work together for good. What is the good that God is working for? Our conformity to the image of Christ. That's the good that God is seeking And God knows that when we are restored as sons and daughters, we'll also restore our relationship to our planet, to our garden that God has given us and held that we're responsible for, right? So it all comes together here. So practically speaking, what does this mean? You know, 
practically speaking, I think the bottom line is that God just wants us to take better care of the earth as sons and daughters, children of God, to be the stewards that God calls us to be, to be the sons and daughters of Christ, to be conformed to God's image of shepherd and care of our planet, right? So let's take a look at an example of what's, what's happening today. So there's something called an ecological footprint, and you can see it on the screen here. This is a, a, a footprint about how fast we consume things like energy, building materials, forests, food, seafood, those things. So all the things that we consume versus the rate at which creation can, can absorb and replenish those things. Does that make sense? So as we consume things, the earth has to also absorb, reabsorb things and replenish and, and regrow things, right? So let's take a look at the rate at which that, because it's out of balance, as you'll see. So the average person in the world, if we take up all seven and a half billion people on the planet and we average out the, the, the footprint, the average person on the planet today takes up about 2.7 global hectares of land to live. So it takes that much land or resources for one person on our planet to live on average right now. In the North America, we are consuming 6.8 global hectares to live. So we are, we are consuming two to three more times than the global average here in, the, in North America. And our rate of consumption is leading to overconsumption of natural resources. North Americans account for 60% of greenhouse gases and 80% of water consumption. 80% of the world's water consumption. Keep in mind that we as consumers, we're part of what's called the consumer class. There's about 12% of us in the consumer class in the, in the Western world. We make up 60% of consumer spending. So 12% of the world's population spends 60% of the world's consumables. So this is, what this is saying is it's out of balance, right? Here's the, here's the thing. Maybe this will stick, right? If, we, if everybody on our planet right now, if all seven and a half billion people decided to live the way that we're living currently in, the, in North America, we would need 4.2 planet Earths to sustain it. You, you got that? It would take 4.2 planet Earths to sustain the amount of consumption that we are doing currently. How many Earths did we get how many earths did God provide for us? One. Who said one? One, right? One, right. Yeah, you got it. One. Thanks for listening, by the way. God gave us one planet, not four. And God said, it's enough. It's enough. Trust me. Have faith in me that it's enough for your daily bread for what you need today. Not tomorrow and the next day and the future and the next 10 years. And the, see? So are we reflecting faith and trust in God to provide for us? Or are we over-consuming, right? Now, we didn't get into this situation individually on our own, did we? <laughs> it was a collective effort, right? We, we collectively got in this together and we're probably going to need to collectively work on getting out of his well and, and 
And uh, so there's some things that we can do. So I would call these preventive steps. They're not solutions, but they are preventive steps that we could take today to care for our creation, to restore our relationship as sons and daughters with God and with the planet. And that is, number one, do your own Bible study about our relationship to God's creation. Do your own Bible study. Don't just take my word for it. Study the Bible for yourself. Learn what the Bible has to say. Uh, I don't have all the answers. Don't claim to have all the answers. I think the Bible gives us a lot of the answers. Number two, did we get this change? I don't know that we got this change, but someone said, uh, can we add the word reduce here to number two? So we reduce, reuse, and recycle is a big thing. So reduce consumption, find ways to reduce our consumption, find ways to reuse things, and find ways to recycle things. Um, Also, Creation, number three, creation care habits, uh, develop some habits like moderate eating. So if we eat less, consume less, uh, we will actually help the planet, right? Because then we don't have to transport all those goods to get to us and all those things to all the, that goes into that. So if we reduce our eating, we actually help the planet, right? And you know, as you can tell, I've been a creature of a bad habit of overeating or overconsuming, right? So we can think about that. It's also healthy for us to do this. Walk or bike places rather than drive the car. You know, sometimes I find myself, I don't know if you do this, but I'll be honest with you, I don't feel like walking to the Thai place to get the Thai food, so I'll drive even though it's like two-tenths of a mile away from my house. Does anybody else do this? Nobody? That's just me. All right. So, but you know, those are the types of things. I could walk, right, as well as drive, but there's so much convenience in getting in the car, right? You could also bike places. I know we got some bikers here in the congregation. Bike, uh, I try and bike uh, to work when I can. And so those types of things we can do. Regular exercise is good for us and good for the uh, environment. Eat locally. Um, one of the things that you and I can do is just go to the farmer's market more, right? Uh, support local farmers. Support local agriculture and help them to, to create sustainable, sustains them. It also helps us create a sustainable planet. So eat locally, eat locally grown things, go to farmer's market, enjoy farmer's market, take you know, your own bags and those things, which I think most people do. And the other thing is just enjoy nature. I think when we get out in nature and enjoy it, we're grateful for what God has given us, and that encourages us to actually be good stewards of it, right? Because we're enjoying it, and we go, oh, I want to keep this. I want to make sure this, is, this stays healthy, right? Uh, number four, reduce energy consumption. That's probably just me being a dad. Like, turn off the lights. Who left the lights on, right? Uh, who, why can't we just put the thermostat at 62 degrees all year round? Wouldn't that be, or just during the winter, right? Yeah, some of you are like, what? Um, you know, so, but those types of things, you know, the, just reduce energy consumption. Find ways to do that. Reduce water consumption. And then number five, leave no trace is a big rule. When you're outdoors, when you're hiking, when you're enjoying nature, there's a big uh, rule out there that's just basically summed up in this idea, leave no trace. Even when you go camping, leave that campsite better and cleaner than you found it. You know, pick up stuff on the trail when you can. Uh, leave no trace. When uh, Heather and I went to get our Christmas tree in December out in the U.S. Forest, uh, US forest I was just amazed at how much junk is out there in the Cascades. We saw tires, beer cans, expended uh, shotgun cartridges, glass bottle broken, uh, all kinds of trash bags, plastic bags, and it's all just scattered out there in the mountains. You don't see it when you're driving through the mountains, but if you get out there and start hiking around, there's a lot of debris out there. 
And uh, it, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about. Leave no trace means you take everything with you when you leave it. So last thing, I'm gonna, I want to leave you with a kind of an image to kind of hopefully get, get us thinking on our way out the day. And around the world, there are five to six what they call garbage islands or garbage uh, floating trash uh, packs, pack, packs uh, kind of like ice packs in the sea, in the ocean. This is a picture of the garbage patch, in the, the large garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean. It's not all in like one big circle. It's stretched out along the current. And this is, just keep in mind, this is all the floating debris, not the stuff that sank to the bottom. This is just the stuff that floats that's in our oceans. And it, the currents collect it into these patches or garbage islands, and there are estimated five or six of these around the world. So when you look at that image, when you see that image... Does that point you to God? Do you look at that image and go, wow, God is awesome. <laughs> or, or God is really cool. I really want to know God because I've seen this image, right? Can, Nancy, can we go back to the first image from the, from, the, from, the, uh, from the Great Barrier Reef? Now, when you look at that image, does that, make you, does that inspire you to want to know God, right? That's the beauty of creation, right? So, here's my thought that I would share with you. When an atheist or an agnostic looks at that garbage on our trails or in the ocean, they're not seeing God. They're not witnessing their creator. They're not getting in touch with their creator. And, and I think this is much an issue of our witness to the rest of humanity, right? Because I want an atheist or an agnostic or someone who doesn't know God to walk into this beautiful world and go, there's got to be a creator. I want to know the creator that made this world. But when they're looking at trash and garbage and pollution and all these things happening on our planet, they're not seeing God. They're not seeing hope. And the creation is waiting for us. <laughs> waiting for us to be revealed waiting for the sons and daughters, the image bearers of God to take care of what God has given us. We are called to that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.